Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this installment of our series on basal insulin. Uh, I'm Dr. James Gavin, a clinical professor of medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, and I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Dr. John Anderson. Hi, I'm Dr. John Anderson, and I practice internal medicine and diabetes at the Frist Clinic in Nashville, Tennessee. And we are now going to discuss issues around identifying and addressing glucose control challenges. So when we look at the approaches to monitoring for troubleshooting blood glucose control problems, we basically have two approaches. We have finger stick and we have meters. And we have a variety of different types of meters now, and this technology is improving all the time. But the purpose is to use these uh, approaches to troubleshoot glucose control problems. The goal for basal insulin therapy is to fix the fasting, to normalize the fasting. Uh, and so you really need to find an approach that the patient can use, that they're comfortable with, that they can do reliably. Um, examples would be uh, to do a measurement once daily at a different time each day, or to do pre- and post-meal uh, assessments at a different meal each day. And one of the limitations, of course, of doing self-monitoring of blood glucose, that is using finger sticks, has been that you, you can only get spot tests. You, you actually pick specific times that we've just alluded to, and that's what you measure. That's what you see. But there's a continuous flow of glucose uh, assessment that might be necessary because there may be things that you miss. You may be missing highs, you may be missing lows, for which reason the advent of CGM or continuous glucose monitoring has really been a major transforming technology uh, in glucose assessment in diabetes. And there are lots of CGM resources available. Um, there's a new diabetes technology section available through the ADA. Um, there's been a wonderful piece uh, uh, written by Davida Kruger and, and others in Diabetes Educator um, in, in this year, in 2019, uh, in uh, a supplement. Now, when you ask, well, what am I going to do with all this information? How do I use what I'm measuring by whatever technique I'm using to actually make an action decision? For example, if all of your readings are above targets, then it seems that the, the, the verdict is in. John? <laughs> Increase the basal dose. You've got to get, especially at those high baseline A1Cs, the whole adage of, you know, fix fasting first really still applies. Let's get them to start the day out of the stratosphere. And, and so it follows then, John, if they're able to fix the, the fasting, but the A1C is still not where you've agreed that you were trying to go, uh, and now all of the postprandials, if they're now starting to measure postprandials, and they're all above targets, 
it's time to do something different. That's right. So here is when you want to add an agent that is targeted for prandial control. What about when hypoglycemia is measured? When you have patients who you know are having hypoglycemia, the first thing to do is what time of day, what are the precipitating factors? Uh, but in general, if this is related to basal insulin, particularly if it's in the morning, you, you've got to keep your patient safe first. You've got to decrease that basal insulin dose and then get them up to safety, and then you can proceed forward. John, let, let's talk about the special cases of people who have frequent, unpredictable glycemic fluctuation. You know, those, those are the really tough ones, isn't it, Jim? I mean, you know, you've got to ask about the lifestyle, their activity. I mean, are they potentiating hypoglycemia with alcohol? Uh, what's their meal pattern look like? What's the carbohydrate content? Are they variable? Are portion sizes changing? You know, again, look at the injection site. Look for technical problems. Make sure they're doing the injection right. But some of these patients may be a pump candidate. The other thing that we always ask is, are you missing doses of your medication? Are you, are you, are you not getting all of your agents in? Because that is really important to know. And the other thing is, is in primary care, I may get 15, 20 minutes with this patient. You know, we've got resources out there and diabetes educators who can spend an hour helping with this. So let's make sure we're using the treatment team. And, and something that I've heard you speak about at some length in, in other presentations is the importance of variability. That what right. we're really trying to do is not just fix fasting, but we're trying to eliminate glycemic variability because it is that glycemic variability that is associated with outcomes that we want to avoid. Early morning glucose levels, when those are not at target, it's important that patients realize that the insulin dose that you should be thinking about for those targets are insulin doses that were actually administered the day before. And as you said before, if you're getting close to that 0.5 units per kilo and you still can't get that fasting glucose down, you may have a postprandial problem you need to check on after dinner, after lunch, that type of thing. John, one of the things that I've heard you also talk about is over-basalization, increasing the basal insulin dose to correct high postprandial glucoses. Would you comment on that as well? Sure. You know, when U100 glargine was introduced around 2000, we got really good in primary care about titrating up the basal insulin, and then we just kept titrating and kept titrating, and you'd have these people on 80, 90, 100 units of insulin. Well, what they really needed was about half that, and either prandial insulin or something else to control the postprandial. So that's why we talk about that 0.5 units per kilo and not over-basalinizing our patients with just basal insulin. And, and so it, it represents a target that we can set for people at the time we talk to them about insulin titration. That, listen, by the time you get to a point where you're at 0.5 units of insulin per kilo of body weight per day, you know, don't go above that unless we talk. And the, and the elephant in the room with insulin regimens remains hypoglycemia. Yes. It is a severe problem. And these are the things that we, we introduce patients to when we start talk, telling them how to recognize hypoglycemia. For example, when, when the blood glucose levels are in the 70 and below uh, range, you start getting adrenergic symptoms. And these are the ones that we uh, typically describe, tremulousness, palpitations, bounding pulses, anxiety uh, going up, uh, hyperarousal, sweating, hunger, and, and people may even get sympathoadrenal symptomatology, pallid uh, 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 complexions, diaphoretic, 
um, uh, elevated heart rates and blood pressures can go up. But John, the, the people who are in the deepest trouble are the ones who are at that next level. Right, those are the people who generally, you know, we use 50 milligrams per deciliter or less where you get into basically neuroglycopenic symptoms. And early on, this can be warmth, weakness, fatigue, convulsion. You, you've seen and heard and witnessed people with behavior changes. They can be irritable with emotional ability. And one of the things we really don't ever want to see is that late neuroglycopenic stage because it is life-threatening. Hypothermia, hemiparesis, seizures, loss of consciousness, coma, and, and even the possibility for brain damage and death. So... You know, this is something we take very seriously. We want to be able to recognize it and avoid ever getting into that zone. And, and because this is such a serious problem, because it can be a life-threatening problem, as clinicians, it really is important that we focus on factors that can increase the risk of hypoglycemia because a lot of decision-making turns on that. And they include frailty and older age, um, cognitive uh, impairment, uh, hypoglycemia unawareness, and that is a circumstance whereby the numbers may drift into the hypoglycemia range, but people are totally unaware of that because they don't get the symptomatology. And, and, and these are people uh, that can be at risk for having severe things like automobile accidents because they don't feel it coming. And the fix for hypoglycemia unawareness is avoidance of hypoglycemia. And so it becomes extremely important that we keep that uh, in mind and relate that to patients. Alcohol use, longer duration of, uh, of diabetes, all of these are things that we have to keep in mind and teach patients about when it comes to hypoglycemia. When they have hypoglycemia, because it is potentially so dangerous, it's important that they know how to treat it correctly and how to treat it promptly. And for that, we have what's called the rule of 15. John, you, you, you've used the rule of 15 in your teaching a lot. I have, and I've, I've always told my patients this is not an excuse to eat. This is not an excuse to have a six Snickers bar. So really, we want to treat with 15 to 20 grams of glucose or simple carbohydrates. So we're talking about a half a cup of juice, you know, about a half a can of a regular soda, uh, three to five glucose tablets. And then because these adrenergic symptoms that you described can persist for 15 minutes, some patients will be feel compelled to eat and eat and eat and treat and treat and treat until the symptoms go away and then they find out their glucose is 320. So really wait the 15 minutes, check your glucose again. And if you need an additional 15 grams of glucose, then by all means treat. And if you're an hour or two away from eating, then maybe a light snack that has a little protein, a little fat in it that will keep your glucoses up for that next couple of hours is indicated. And of course, you know, if the patient's not conscious, you're going to want to administer glucagon, and that is not the patient's medicine. That is the caregivers, anyone around that patient's medicine. And we do have the injectable form, but there are coming uh, nasal delivery of glucagon. So stay tuned in the marketplace. We may have that available as well. That's a good segue into talking about our patient case, which we'll do now. To talk about, John, this 58-year-old man who has had diabetes for nine years. Um, his A1C has started to fall. He's down from what he was, which was 8.8%. He's now down to 8%. He's 125 kilos. Uh, he's still on metformin twice a day an SGLT2 inhibitor, 
started but what could not tolerate a GLP-1, and he's on basal insulin, um, ultra-long-acting basal insulin, and he's been increasing his uh, dose by four units a week, and he's now up to a dose of 40 units of ultra-long uh, basal uh, insulin a day. They did continue, discontinue his sulfonylurea, which uh, we pointed out is one of the things that might be reasonable to do. His fasting glucose, however, is not yet fixed. It's 150 to 175 when he's measured it. So what, what, what do we do, John, about his titration now? What, what's the conversation you have with him when he tells you, Dr. Anderson, I'm now taking 40 units of this insulin a day. Uh, when, when does it stop? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we know his fasting glucose is still in that 150 to 175, but it's better than it was. And his A1C has come down 0.8. But if you look at this 275-pound gentleman with 125 kilos, he's really not gotten to that 0.5 units per kilo that we talked about. In fact, you would say he might need 65 to 70 units of basal insulin at least before we start having another conversation. So I think with this fasting, you've got a little more room to titrate. I'd ask him, how's the titration going, or are you having any problems? Um, are you missing any injections? Is there a time of day that would work better if he's doing nighttime? Um, if he's missing doses, then let's make it a morning dose. Really, it's, it's really the patient preference on morning or evening. So let me thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anderson, for this discussion, and thank you and our audience for joining us for this installment of our series on basal insulin. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.